Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Tinbidermias. On today's episode, two books in which natural elements are characters unto themselves. We begin with The Wind. Writer Alex Michaelides sets his new mystery novel, The Fury, on a windy, remote Greek island. The title refers to the wind itself, its strength, its unpredictability, and how both those traits can drive you mad. He spoke about the book with All Things Considered host Mary Louise Kelly, and they discussed how this novel pays homage to the murder mystery genre, but also how it bucks some traditions, and why the wind is an ideal situation for a murder mystery. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. Seven people trapped on a remote Greek island. One of them will not survive the night. Well, that is the story that unfolds in the new novel, The Fury. The Fury, by the way, is a wild, unpredictable Greek wind, the kind of wind that drives you mad, as the author, Alex Michaelides, hints darkly on the very first page. Alex Michaelides is in our New York bureau. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show, so I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you with us. All right. So just to be clear, we're dealing here with a murder at a house party on a remote island with a storm blowing in and the killer is one of the house guests. So I have to ask, were you intentionally channeling Agatha Christie? <laughs> I mean, she's, <laughs> she's clearly lurking in the background here. Yeah, you know, you you can't write a novel like this without on some level referencing or being aware of Christie because, of course, she did it first with um, And Then There Were None. Mm. And um, in my opinion, she did it best. And so many hundreds of writers have tried to do it since then. Um, and so, you know, what it felt very important to me in writing this novel that I didn't just rehash Christie's novel. So what I tried to do was just to turn the whole genre on its head. Um, you know, the thing is that reading this kind of novel, because we all have read that kind of setup where people are trapped on an island, you bring all kinds of expectations to it. And so for me, the fun thing will be playing with the reader's expectations. One thing you do very differently is Hercule Poirot never waltzes in. Miss Marple does not show up. Your characters are left to sort this out amongst themselves. Why did that appeal? Why did that appeal? I think because that wasn't the kind of story I was trying to write. I felt that I wanted to try and, and bring this as close as I possibly could to real people with real emotions and very kind of complex psychologies. And so something about resisting an easy, tidy conclusion with a superhuman detective felt right for me. I wanted it to feel messy and um, as realistic as I could possibly make it. What else did you do to turn the Agatha Christie convention on its head? I think it was a lot about trying to bring a, a psychology to it. So, you know, I, I, I think um, what really interests me is childhood and childhood trauma. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up on the, the very small island of Cyprus, um, and I was kind of a lonely, nervous, anxious child. I think I still am. And I uh, was obsessed with films and film stars. 
And I thought if I could just get to Hollywood, that I would be very happy and all my dreams would come true. And so I did and got there and worked as a screenwriter and realized I was just as miserable and anxious as I had been before. And so I started to look inward at my childhood and went on this huge journey of therapy, you know. Mm. And I feel that all of these characters that I'm writing about are wounded children. And that was the, that's the heart of the novel for me, really, is that kind of aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a theme that runs through it. Um, and you just said you were a lonely, anxious child, and you kind of still are. Um, your narrator, who we're going to talk more about, but is a man named Elliot. And he he feels this so strongly, he sometimes talks out loud to the the wounded child inside him. What were you mm-hmm. What were you trying to bring out there? That was my turning point in therapy, I suppose, was this realization that um, we all carry this traumatized child around with us, and very often we confuse the present and the past, or, or rather the child in our head does. And it's only by sort of learning to communicate with that child, I think, that we can lead a more authentic and integrated life. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting journey for a hero to go on in a book. Mm, you just called him a hero. Um, Elliot, your narrator, he is one of the house guests. He's not very likable in my view. Why put mm-hmm. the story in his hands? Oh gosh, well, he he may not be likable per se, but um, I think he's quite interesting. And I, what I tried to do, it was honestly, The Fury was the most creative experience I've had um, because I changed the way that I write. Um, for my first two novels, The Silent Patient and The Maidens, I plotted them for about a year before writing a word. Uh-huh. And then with The Fury, I, I really wanted to have some fun. And I thought, I'm not going to plot this. I'm just going to write it. And um, as I wrote it, Elliot told me the story himself. And it was it was an amazing experience because um, I wrote it, you know, with him speaking directly to the reader all the way through. And um, by doing that, I, I felt that he was sort of telling me the story, I suppose. And all of these things that I didn't know, like about his childhood and his relationship with an older writer named Barbara West, just appeared, um, you know, on on the page as I was writing without me having even the names, everything just sort of magically happened. So it felt like a really creative, joyous experience for me. So this is so interesting. Without giving away any plot twists or who the killer is, you're saying you didn't know who the killer was going to be when you started? No. No, I didn't. That's why it was, it was so much fun do, writing like that. And it was hair-raising, and it you know, led me to all kinds of difficulties. But in terms of a creative experience, it was fantastic. When you finally figured it out, did you have to go back and unpick all these <laughs> all these dead ends and red herrings that you'd laid out because you didn't know either as you were writing? Yeah, very Louise. It's really funny you say that because, yes, there was a moment when the first draft had a different ending and a different twist, and it mm. didn't work. And I showed it to my editors, and they both said okay, you have a choice now. Either you can bin this book or you can go back to the beginning and try and work something else out. And um, I think it's a really good lesson in not panicking because what happened was I put my laptop down for a whole month and I just walked around the park and I went through the story beat by beat by beat and let the characters take me in a different direction. And the one they took me on was much more surprising, much more interesting and felt much more authentic as well. So. One more character to ask you about, and I use the term loosely because it's it's the fury, it's the weather, this wild Greek wind. And I'm interested to hear that you grew up on Cyprus. Um, is this a wind and a and a kind of setting that you know firsthand? Oh yes, I mean 
Cyprus is an island of the Mediterranean, um, and one of the lovely things about Cyprus is its proximity to Greece and the Greek islands. And so I spent a lot of time traveling there when I was younger. Um, the, the Greek islands are notorious for the wind. And when I was about 20 years old, I was on the island of Mykonos, and mm. I was stranded there for three days because the wind was so strong that no boats could leave and no boats could get across the water. And I remember thinking then, oh, that would be a really fun way to trap people for a story. And then, you know, decades later, um, the fury emerged. Um, so, yes, it's also like it's a metaphor for the heightened emotions that kind of run through the book, too. It just felt like a very appropriate and happy choice of um, device, yeah. I suppose. Well, and it also, it's its a wind that it's powerful enough to blow everything clean, you know, clues, yes. evidence. Yes. <laughs> all, yes. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I didn't think of that, but you're, you're quite right. It solved a lot of problems, actually. There you go. Alex Michaelides, he's talking about his new novel, The Fury. Thank you so much. This has been great. That's a real pleasure. Thank you. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Next up, fire. I know it's a cliche to say that art imitates life, but in the case of the new book Radiant Heat by Sarah Jane Collins, it's kind of true. The novel takes place in the aftermath of a wildfire that's devastated parts of Australia, and it was inspired by real events that the author covered back when she was working as a journalist in Melbourne. She told Weekend Edition host Scott Simon that the stories of the people she covered stuck with her for years after she met them and shaped so much of who she is as a writer. In this interview, she explains more about what led her to write this novel and what wildfires taught her about uncertainty and faith. Sarah Jane Collins' novel Radiant Heat begins with her protagonist, Alison King, who is an artist still alive and finally breathing air after she's been hiding under a wet blanket from a wildfire. She begins to move around, then finds a car in her driveway. A woman is dead inside. She is a stranger to Allison. But why does she have Allison's name and address in her purse? Radiant Heat is set in Australia. It is the debut novel from Sarah Jane Collins, an Australian writer who now lives in New York, and she joins us from our bureau there. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The woman in the car is a name on her driver's license, Simone Arnold. And she does seem to have a lot of superficial traits in common with Alison, doesn't she? She does, yes. That's the intrigue that Alison has to wrestle with. What does she notice? First, she notices that they both lived in uh, Cairns, which is a smaller city in the north of Australia, quite mm -hmm. far from where the book is set. She also notices that they're around the same age and that they sort of look a little similar to each other. What do uh, the police make of the dead woman in the car who turns out to have all these potential connections with Allison? They're pretty dismissive at first. They think that this woman is just trying to escape 
the fire, which if you've ever been caught on a highway in the middle of a fire, you might turn up any street that is familiar to you. And because Alison panics a little when she finds her address in the woman's purse, at first the police don't even know that the woman was actually looking for Alison because she keeps that back, that information back just to herself. And she can't even really explain to herself why she does that. It's just an impulsive thing that she decides to do. Tell us about this part of Australia in which the story is set. So the town itself uh, does not exist. It's fake. But it's in the same region as a number of small towns that were ravaged by a very serious bushfire in 2009, which was known as the Black Saturday Bushfire. That fire ripped through regional Victoria and killed 173 people. It was, at the time, the most devastating natural disaster bushfire that Australia had ever seen. And um, these towns that these fires happened in are kind of on the outskirts of Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria. You were working at a newspaper then, weren't you, in in 2009? Yeah, Yeah, I I was um, was two years out of my cadetship as a, a journalist for the Age newspaper, which was Melbourne's broadsheet newspaper. And at the time of the fires, I was covering the county court of Victoria, which is sort of the mid-tier court. And so I was not sent out to cover the actual fires, but I was then moved to the state politics office and spent most of the next year following the premier of Victoria around as he announced reconstruction projects. And so I met a lot of people who had been through those fires in the year after they occurred. And they stayed with you when writing this novel, in a sense? They really did. And um, really, it's my time working at the age that informs most of this book, not just the fire, but also that time covering the court system and being exposed to some of the more upsetting elements of criminal law and seeing the extent of uh, violence against women in Australia. Even when it is reported you don't really, you just get the tip. You're not, you're not seeing the whole iceberg essentially. And so because I was sort of doused in it every single day, it was, <laughs> it was quite confronting. And that was something that also stayed with me and very much informs what happens in Radiant Heat. Yeah. Well, with, without giving too much away, we discovered that Alison and Simone have that history in common too, sort of, don't they? Yes. Yes. And that is part of, I think, what motivates Alison to try and find our way to find some sort of justice for Simone and also for herself. Whether or not she achieves that is also kind of something that I really wrestled with in in writing the book because we often don't see justice in these situations. What are some of the many reasons that, uh, that at least as we've seen so far in our justice system, prevent that from being realized? I think it's a really hard area of law It's so personal. A lot of women are just unwilling to come forward in the first instance. And then when they do, there is a lot more doubt. I think we're quick as a society to not want to believe that the worst things are happening. And it becomes easier to say, oh, well, there isn't any evidence of this aside from what this person is saying. So, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is very hard to achieve. May I ask, when you were a... um criminal courts reporter. Was there a part of you that was preparing to become a novelist that was salting away information, stories, the look in people's eyes? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a good 
newspaper journalist, you should always be kind of squirreling that stuff away anyway to write your piece and to give people the colour of the courtroom in a way that brings them into the space. Uh, So I guess I learned from some pretty grizzled (laughs) court reporters the things to look for and to keep an eye on and not just how to take accurate shorthand notes of what people were saying, but to observe what else was going on around me. And I think as well, I became, personally became a, um, a newspaper journalist because when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a novelist, but I thought that wasn't really a financially sensible path. And so I decided what was the next best thing. It was to write for a newspaper. And that was obviously many years ago now before the internet kind of destroyed mm-hmm. traditional publishing. Um, I, I sort of think <laughs> right, that... Right, when, when that seemed like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. It's like, I, I feel like it's a bad joke now to say, oh, when I was a kid, I thought I'll grow up and be a newspaper journalist because that's a solid career path. Of course, a huge fire looms over the story as it uh, as it has over much of Australia in in recent years. And I was touched by some words you have near the end of this novel Throw yourself on the mercy of the wind. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? <laughs> um, you know, when I wrote that, I was thinking a lot about some of the first person accounts I read of Black Saturday, um, where people talked about how literally they would not exist still today in the world if the wind had not changed at a certain moment in time. How out of our control really our lives can be in particularly in the face of sort of the it's it's not the right word but the awesomeness of such a powerful fire and how there's only so much you can do to protect yourself against really anything you just have to have a little bit of faith in living and hopefully you'll be okay Sarah Jane Collins her novel Radiant Heat Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tinbi Dermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Jacob Conrad, Julie Deppenbrock, Lena Mohammed. Christopher Intaglieta, Gus Contreras, Dee Parvaz, Gable Connor, Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Catherine Fox, Fatma Tanis, Alejandra Marquez Hanse, Shannon Rhodes, and Ryan Bank. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. And those at Delta are travelers just like you. That's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. 